while the worship team is stepping down, I have one other thing that I'd like to share with you uh, in reference to, uh, and it's obvious, and we've mentioned it a couple of times before now, we have uh, kind of encompassed our, our area with a fence. And uh, they've got uh, special uh, handles on them so that you really have to know how to get out to get out. But it doesn't take older kids much to figure out how to get out of anything. And, of course, as fences go with old buildings, they, you know, they didn't quite close in maybe at this little corner under a bush or something. And kids are amazing, aren't they? They can find any hole in a fence. And so, uh, you know, what we need is your help. Just if you see kids outside the fence, you can either notify their parents, notify one of us, or if you're bold enough to, to chase a kid down, you know, but we want to keep them in the fence. We're really concerned about their welfare. That's why we put these fences in. This corner has gotten terrible. And, you know, uh, I see cars come around here. They come around without hesitation. They, they, they don't think of these cars parked diagonally, even no matter how many times they go around the corner. They've come to a halt and, you know, because they almost hit the car. Kids step out from behind a car. There's no, it's just, it's not safe. And so that's why the fence is there. We want to keep them inside. We're teaching them as well. We're telling the parents. We're telling everybody. But I thought we'd just make it a, a blanket covering that uh, we want to keep those kids safe. So I appreciate your help with that. We are in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 3. Talking about the baptism of Jesus. These scriptures have been read we, uh, this morning. And I'd just like to, to jump right into it. Uh, and, and, and get some background to this. Uh, we're coming in the Scripture here in an interesting point. And the reason for that is, is that we're basically coming out of 18 years of silence. And what I mean by that is the last thing we have recorded of Jesus and His earthly life up to this point is his appearance in the temple at the age of 12 uh, at a, a Passover. And you remember, the, the I'm sure, the, the Scriptures and story that goes with that and the picture of uh, the parents getting down the road and, and, and realizing, oh my goodness, we've, we've left, uh, where's Jesus? Where, you know, and, and so they go back looking for him and, and people are uh, always, you know, we always kind of think, I thought Joseph and Mary were, you know, super parents or something here. Uh, no, they're typical parents, and, but, but also traveling with large groups of people. We just don't understand what it is to be traveling almost caravan style, on foot mostly, uh, covering long distances. And it was just that probably uh, approached a, a gathering time for a meal or some point, and they're saying, where is Jesus? Oh, no. You know, so back they go. I don't know if you have ever left anybody behind or if you've ever been left be well, I'm careful with that one, huh? Left behind. Uh, but uh, uh, the the idea is is that uh, I I've been left behind, still wondering how uh, how accidental it was. But uh, the 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 idea is that you know you you panic, and today it's even more so than than, than it used to be. Uh, you know, we have situation where, where you're in the store and you have your kids with you and you just you, you turn your back and you turn and you turn around again and your kid is not there. And your heart just kind of sinks. Now, I don't know that they, that they would have experienced such a reaction to that 
as much as, as just the concern, where is Jesus? You know, and having to go all the way back to Jerusalem to find him. And understand, too, that at this time of the year, uh, Passover, there are literally tens of thousands and thousands upon thousands of visitors to the city of Jerusalem. There's a whole tent city outside the walls of Jerusalem. There's markets. There's all sorts of things going on. And, and so to find one kid in, in is needle in the haystack business here. And yet they finally look. And, of course, you can always make the joke out at the last place they look. But, uh, you know, it was the temple. And there Jesus is interacting with the teachers in the temple. And they're amazed at, at his comprehension, his understanding of what was going on with him. And he just, he made it, you know, kind of, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? So even at that point, knowing something about his call and his understanding, we don't know exactly when Jesus fully comprehended his call and his ministry, but, but it was obviously something was even at work right there. The, from that point on, it's silent until we get in here to the baptism of Jesus. And he shows up to be baptized. Luke tells us very clearly Jesus was about 30 years old. So how do I get missing 18 years? 12, 30, 18, right? And, and so what was going on during these years? And I'll tell you, if you really want to look into this, you are going... I won't dare you to do this because you get so much junk stuff. Uh, that, you know, Go online and just type on the missing years of Jesus. Uh, you're going to have him having traveled in caravans to India and the East and learning all about Eastern religions and coming back and revising the Jewish religion based on things he learned from the Zoroastrians and, and, and the Persians and whatever. And uh, at other points, you're going to, to have him you know, uh, in, in just different kinds of situations. They call it the missing years, the lost years, the lost years of Jesus in Tibet. I thought that one was really interesting in Tibet. Um, so now we're going to time with the, the Dalai Lama and, 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 and all of that kind of stuff, that you know, mystic Eastern uh, religion. And uh, none of this is accurate. The Scripture actually gives us a fairly decent idea of what was going on. We need to turn to the, the Gospel of Luke to, to catch this. Uh, Luke chapter 2. Uh, this is right after Jesus was, was in the temple uh, and, and his parents found him there. Uh, but we, uh, we have that uh, verse 51 is actually where I want to pick up here. And he, referring to Jesus, went down with them, his parents, and came to Nazareth. And again, he went down from Jerusalem north to Nazareth. <laughs> went down, yes, always because for the Jewish people, Jerusalem, the focal point of their life, their faith, their worship, it's no matter what point on the earth they are standing, it is up to Jerusalem. And so, and, and down from Jerusalem. And so they went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So the first thing we get there is that he was submissive to them. Uh, he was a, a model child, <laughs> and uh, he, he, he was under his father's authority. 
And he yielded to that because that's what this word and idea connotates within the Jewish culture, that in every way he was submissive, honoring his mother and his father, all the things that go with that. It goes on to say, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. The idea then is that Jesus grew in wisdom, which means his mental ability, capacity, understanding. He grew in stature, which is physical growth. He grew in favor with God, which is spiritual growth. And he grew in favor with man, which is social growth. He was, you know, he went through all the things that every person goes through to grow into adulthood and maturity. He just he did it sinless. But he understands all of the aches and pains and, and things of growing, of growing up, and, and all of the things that go on with that. We also find in Matthew chapter 13, going back to Matthew, a few interesting uh, comments that give us a little insight also to uh, what was going on while Jesus was growing up. Now, Jesus at this point is uh, returned to Nazareth to teach. And uh, see, pick it up at the 53rd verse of chapter 13 of Matthew. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and they said, now listen carefully to these things. Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? And in another point, it actually says, is this not the carpenter? Okay, what does that tell you right there? That prior to his 30 years uh, and entering into his ministry, he was doing what? Carpentry. Why we can't deal with that, I don't know as far as the, the overall picture. Somebody always trying to find something unusual, new, to, to try to explain away something. But he was, he, was, he was submissive to his father, which also implies that he learned his father's trade. And he was a carpenter, the carpenter's son. Is not his mother called Mary? In other words, these Nazarenes are saying, we know this family we know this man. We saw him raised up. Now, they're not saying anything about his character as much as they're just saying, where is, where, you know, how is it all of a sudden he's making all this teaching and doing all this stuff? This is a guy we know from our hometown. We never saw any of this. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Not Iscariot. And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Interesting question for them. They hadn't seen it. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I don't know about you, but uh, if you have large parts of your family that are unsaved and you go home, it is interesting, you know, especially as, as, as it gets on in the years. But, you know, Kathy and I have experienced over and over and over again, we go to families that rarely ever will have a family gathering. If we're not there, there's normally not a prayer. There's not a, you know, 
But when we were there, it was, oh, oh, oh. Bob, would you pray for the meal? Yeah. Uh, you know, they're not sure what to do with me. One part of my family, uh, because of uh, my extended family, because of their Catholic background, they're not sure what to call me. Uh, one of the elderly uh, ladies in, the, in that part of the family calls me Father Bob. Uh, you know, I can't convince her that I'm other than that. Uh, you know, uh, I told her, you know, you know, I'm Protestant. I'm the right Reverend Robert. Uh, but that, that didn't do any good either. Um, but the idea is, is to understand that it's hard to minister to your family. I've shared with you before, my, my uncle was really concerned when I started doing wedding, weddings and funerals in our family because he, he just couldn't figure out if it, first off, he wondered if it was legal. Because he knew me before. Now, they, unfortunately, you see, he didn't know me as a compliant child. Uh, you know, but, you know, and it wasn't until my, my stepfather's funeral his brother-in-law's funeral, that, that uh, he turned around and says, you really believe all of this, don't you? And at my son's funeral, that uh, one of our, our nieces, uh, our son, nephew's wives said, oh, he really believes all of this, doesn't he? You know, so occasionally it gets through, but not on a big scale. And so Jesus is at home. And they've known him since he grew up. It becomes kind of obvious here. Where was Jesus for 18 years? He was a carpenter in the city of Nazareth, grew up in, with his, under his father's tutelage, and, 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 and until he was 30, that was probably exactly what he did. And I'm comfortable with that. You know, I, I can see that. It's, it's enough for me to, to say, you know, I don't have to go looking for caravans to explain away Jesus' understanding of Scripture and, and spirituality and stuff like that. Because I know who he is to start with. He didn't have to go away to get it. We uh, also catch something else pretty important here in the sense that depending on who you're talking about, when you start talking about brothers and sisters, now it names four brothers, and it says sisters, plural. So at least what? Two sisters. Possibly and probably more. But at least... Six brothers and sisters, making him a, a seventh child. But he is, by designation, in Joseph's lineage. And this is important to grab. By jo- in Joseph's lineage, he is seen as Joseph's firstborn. And you say, well, he wasn't really born of Joseph, but because Joseph received Mary pregnant, the way he received her made the adoption an actuality. He received Jesus as his own son and he immediately had the status of firstborn son. It's extremely important because that gives him the lineage entitlement to the throne of David. The reason why that's important is we have a whole segment of, 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 of uh, churches and group, uh, especially the Catholic Church, who hold that Jesus, uh, that Mary was a virgin from birth to death. And if you want to go into the extreme doctrine, she was the birth of a virgin. Uh, as well, and, and, and that's obviously stretching it even further. But that's how they can elevate Mary. But as a result, how do they explain away this scripture? Well, they say Joseph was married before and he had four sons and daughters. If that were true, Jesus wouldn't have the right to the lineage of the throne to claim David and to claim the throne unless the father intentionally bypassed them, which would be very, very unusual and very unlikely, and nothing said about it, 
or unless all four of the brothers had died. But it's made clear from the beginning. Jesus is the firstborn. So Mary, I, I, I hope anybody that has Catholic background and has never had to wrestle with this, that I'm not bursting any bubbles this morning, but i just setting the record straight. Jesus had brothers and sisters from Joseph and Mary. Mary was not a virgin. It says Joseph didn't know her until after Jesus was born, which means very clearly as soon as Jesus was born, they had a typical husband-wife relationship and they had a family. So with all of this, we know quite a bit about Jesus' background in 18 years. But at the point in time where John the Baptist's ministry is in full swing, Jesus shows up. Verse 13 of, of, of chapter 3 of Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, the first thing that you get here is that Jesus came to the Jordan from his home in Galilee. Nazareth is implied. And it said, different, it said that in another scripture. And he has a purpose in mind. He has come, it is his origination as far as the idea, to be baptized by John. Now, the question is, has John seen this second or third or fourth cousin, whatever the actual relationship is, since uh, they were both born? We have no scripture to tell us. Is it possible? Yes. Did John know Jesus is, as the Messiah? I do not believe so, and I'll show you why in a minute. At least not in a context of absolute sureness. Jesus shows up to be baptized. It's his plan. And when John sees Jesus, John says would have prevented him from insisting. In other words, no, I can't do this. And he says to Jesus, you should be baptizing me, and you ask me to baptize you? And, and so you, you get this, this, this question mark from John. Uh, and, and I put it down here at this point. Then what did John the Baptist know here at this moment? We can only speculate, but John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34 helps a little bit because it says very clearly in that passage that John would know the Messiah after a particular event. After the descending of the Holy Spirit resting on him. And he says, that's how I would know him. That's how I knew him. In fact, he explains that in 1 John. You want to know how I know it is? Because this happened. Before that, I didn't know, but I know. And so I look at this and say, well, you know, there's all the people trying to figure out, well, what was, what was going on here? Uh, did, did God, you know, know growing up what was asking? And I think it's a simple answer. And sometimes you, we, we don't understand some things that go with the Bible, especially John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist represents the last of the Old Testament prophets, meaning he is of the old order. He is the forerunner to what will lead into the new order. But he is the last of the Old Testament prophets, resulting in the fact that he is a prophet with all the authority of a prophet, 
with all the 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 the, the, retor- the, the representation of God to the people as a prophet would have, meaning that uh, when he shows up and he says this 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 and this, he is basically saying, "Thus saith the Lord," and here's what we are to do. And he was telling the people, "You need to repent and be and be baptized and and to prepare your hearts to receive." the kingdom of God that is coming and the Messiah that and, and, and he was laying straight the path for all of this. He was fulfilling Scripture. When the Sadducees and the Pharisees showed up, I don't think it was just a physical understanding, but something that was unique to a prophet. When they showed up, he could see right into their hearts. He said, there's no fruit in you. I know what you believe, but you don't, you're not showing any fruit of it. You brood of vipers. We went through all of that last week. So you understand what is going on here is that John the Baptist is able as a prophet to read the hearts of people. Jesus shows up. No matter what else he knows, I really believe as a prophet of God, he was able to see and understand this man is pure. I know I'm not. I have no place in baptizing him. Any other possibilities are, I believe, in a sense, subordinate to that. And so, Jesus makes a... a, He sees, you know, John sees this man who is righteous before God, before him, and at the moment he sees him, he he, he knows his own sin even more. And, and, And then Jesus says, let it be so now. That phrase alone, this is the time for this to happen. Let it be so now. This is the time for this to happen. It's necessary. It's fitting. And notice the next statement. For us to fulfill all righteousness. Not for me to fulfill all righteousness. Not for you to fulfill all righteousness. But for us. For John and Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what comes with this scripture, as Jesus says he's, he needs to be, you know, comes to be baptized, and he's telling John, nope, this is the way it's going to happen. Why was Jesus baptized? Some of you, I'm sure, have, have heard messages, sermons, read on this, and have, uh, you know, ideas, passages, things that you would look to for answers. But I just, I, I'm going to share with you where I come from on this. Why was Jesus baptized? Uh, I mean, he's sinless. There's no repentance going on here. He doesn't need to, you know, John's baptism for repenting of sins and, and, and changing of his heart. Um, and there's many ideas, again, to what was going on here. Um, some of you are familiar with uh, G. Campbell Morgan. Uh, I uh, enjoy his... His uh, sermons, I like to read them, uh, even on a devotional level. And, and uh, one of the things that he says is that Jesus, even here, and I think this is really an interesting thought, sees Jesus, even here at this point, being numbered with the transgressors. Where does he get that from? Psalm 50, uh, uh, Isaiah 53, where it says that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. He's seen prophecy being fulfilled with John, a prophet, being involved and in a sense, Jesus identifying 
with the, and, and being numbered with the transgressions even in the beginning of his ministry with his baptism. Others would say to announce the beginning of his ministry. In other words, to say, here I am. It's time to, for this to, to evolve into uh, the, the ministry that God's called me to. Others have said his outward agreement to God's plan. In other words, he's showing submission to the Father. And by the way, that is an eternal relationship that Christ has with the Father. You look in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll see where husbands the head of the wives. We don't, you know, our culture really frowns on that verse. Uh, and, 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 and then it says, just as Christ is submissive to the Father, or the Father is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of the church, husbands are the head of the wife. In other words, there's an order to headship that God has put into place, and Jesus, even though he is equal with God in every context, because he didn't think it's something to be grasped, but emptied himself of it to come as a man, Philippians chapter 2, it turns around and says that he still was under the headship of God the Father. And so even here we see, you know, one person saying a foreshadow, you know, the outward agreement to God's plan. Uh, a foreshadowing, and this is interesting, a foreshadowing of his own death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus is put under and brought up and it's symbolic of a foreshadowing of, of what was yet to come literally on the cross. And it is interesting that Jesus calls what he has happening on the cross a baptism. It's the only other time. It's the only other time Jesus uses the word. Many have put it this way, and it was put this way to me as to why I should be baptized. Jesus was baptized. We all should be baptized. This I like in the sense of the idea of submission to God's authority and plan. But Jesus's baptism and our baptism are not parallel, are not together. Jesus was not baptized. You know, for the, the 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 same reason that we get baptized. So that's the thing I get concerned about when people do that. It's the weakest to, to me of all the arguments. Possibly the simplest answer initially is again the fact that J. I put J. B. here. That's the way I abbreviate my nose. J. B. John the Baptist is a prophet called of God to prepare the way for the Messiah and the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and to ID the Messiah, to identify the Messiah. His descending, the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. At some point this is to happen. The baptism is the point where this happens. So for John the Baptist to know and identify with confidence who Jesus is, the Messiah, and, and, and the idea of the kingdom of God coming. Again, Jesus' statement, for us to fulfill all righteousness. For us means Jesus and John the Baptist acting together. And I believe, in a sense, cementing their witness for each other. Jesus identifying John is a prophet of God, I have submitted to. And the other side of, of it is uh, John being able to identify Jesus and say he is the one. I put in the bulletin the, the, the title, which has nothing to do with Matthew, in a sense, Behold the Lamb of God, who take, you know, with dot, 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 you know, implied with the rest of it, who comes to take away the sin of the world. That's what John says when he sees Jesus in John chapter 1. And, and, 
And, he, and this is after Jesus has been baptized. And again, he says it because he knows what he saw, what happened, and what transpired. This was the last Old Testament act to, that was called by a prophet to be acted out on, to be baptized. It was an obedience to fulfilling the law, even. Thus, righteousness being fulfilled. Jesus, the man, was obedient. You know, quite candidly, all of these, I don't have a problem with a blending of, of these in the sense of, of where you go with this. I really believe it has to do initially because of the way Jesus said it for us. So it has to do with John's ministry and his ministry. That it has to do with fulfilling John's ministry and starting his ministry in such a way that, that, that righteousness is proclaimed. Jesus has done everything. And that puts me back with G. Campbell Morgan's idea, which is the, the one I tend to lean to uh, the, the most, is that at this point also, Jesus being identified from the very beginning of his ministry with the transgressors. Now, that doesn't mean you have to accept all of those because I'm skating all around, if you will, some suppositions about Scripture and what it might imply. And quite candidly, there are such good scholars in so many camps of this that I'm not about to, to take a stand and say, this is what is absolutely true. But you, I just want you to understand why I come from where I am on this and, and, and what I believe. And it's, it's just that I believe he was fulfilling the last act of God's call of the law through a prophet that was called by God. And he was fulfilling all righteousness in such a way that by doing that and in a process validating John's ministry and at the same time, John was, was able to see the Holy Spirit descend and validate in the beginning and identification of Christ in his ministry. And certainly, the only, anybody who was coming to be baptized were people understanding they were what? Transgressors before the throne of God. And they were coming to be right with God in their hearts in such a way as to confirm it through their baptism that, yes, we agree we are sinners, we need this kingdom of God. We need this Messiah. Not understanding all that they were saying, but being ready and anxious to receive it by faith. And as a result, I do see a parallel and I, that where you could say Jesus was numbered among the transgressors. I, I put it about the very bottom of my page. Think about it, Bob. In some way, Jesus accomplished all of these things. Now, what happens next is, is what really becomes a focus. People get so distracted on other things, but to me this is the, the, the real essence of what is really happening here. And that is this idea of God and the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. Immediately, John, you know, Jesus is baptized. He comes up, and by the way, when, he, when he's there, whether it's he's still standing in the water, I believe he is because of the context of this word immediately, but Luke says he was praying. There's something important about that for me, and, and, and you'll see in a minute, but just the fact that it says, Luke says very clearly, Jesus was praying, Luke 3.21. He was praying at the time that what we're talking about happens. Immediately. He saw the Holy Spirit as a dove descend and rest on Jesus. 
You know, I've never given the thought about the idea of the dove much thought, you know, much consideration. Uh, You've got to understand part of it, I think, has to do for when I become, you know, entered into the, my relationship with Christ was in the, 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 the late 70s or mid-70s, actually. And at that point, every other church was using the dove as a symbol for something. You know, the, and the idea was, was kind of a, almost like there was a, a, a rebirth of the idea that, hey, there's a Holy Spirit in our in our in our in our worship, and there's a Holy Spirit in the in in, in us, and and we've kind of maybe neglected that, and, and there was caught to the point where there was actually an overemphasis the other way. Okay, uh, even somebody who I you know respect in his ministry was Chuck Smith, and Chuck Smith was very in fact he used the Holy Spirit descending as a dove as part of his logo logo. Okay, so don't you know he he was very and he was charismatic. He he was he came out of the uh, Foursquare movement, and 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 his reason for leaving that was because the Foursquare movement was getting so caught up with Pentecostal context and 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 experiential stuff, and leaving the Word of God behind. And he he came to a conclusion that this was wrong. He went out on his own, and and God, I really believe, honored his ministry. But even he saw. The extremes, even in, in, in the independent corners, if you will, and outside of the Pentecostal movement, of what he called charismania. He even wrote a book about it. Okay, and, and the idea was that people getting too carried away with this. And, and so, you know, what I'm saying is, is that the idea is that the dove, from the very beginning of my walk with Christ, was very much a part of the emblems, if you will, of Christianity. People had dove pins. People had dove Bible covers. People had, you know, dove bumper stickers. Uh, and, and, and I'm not faulting any of that, okay? But I, as a result, I have to tell you candidly, I never really looked at the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. I just kind of took it in stride. The Holy Spirit is represented by a dove. I never asked the question, why a dove? Why not an eagle? Soaring as eagles? You know, I like that scripture. And maybe part of it's because eagles are aggressive and I tend to lean that way. Uh, you know, why not an eagle? A dove. And I'll tell you, this is the first time I've done an in-depth study on this. I'm not going to have time to share with you all of it, but let me give you a synopsis of it. First off, didn't Jesus already have the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. Okay, so so he never didn't have the Holy Spirit. And 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 and, and so I'm thinking, why a dove and 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 why with this this descending of the Holy Spirit? And I'm going to deal with the last first. The Holy Spirit, I believe from after looking at all of the things that I've looked at over the years, was coming to empower Jesus' ministry. In other words, we say in the Scripture, you know, when we become a Christian, we, are, we, are, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's there. But we go through seasons of calling on the Holy Spirit to empower us. We say being filled with the Holy Spirit for purposes of ministry especially. And we see that several times in the book of Acts. I think that's consistent with, with the way of looking at some things. 
And you're saying, why would Jesus need to be empowered? Well, I could ask you the same question. Why did Jesus pray? Did he need to pray to communicate with the Father? Was that the process he had used up to before that point? He always prayed to the Father eternally? Why here was he, you know, why is the, and boy, there is no small emphasis on the amount of time Jesus prayed. He prayed before every major decision time and point in the Scripture. You look at when he was choosing the disciples, when the, just before the transfiguration, certainly in the Garden of Gethsemane, other places, and, and, and even, I think it's Luke chapter 5, talks about he was always going out as his, his habit to a wilderness area to pray. Wilderness area at that point meaning a, a place that was quiet. A prayer closet, if you will. A place away from the distractions of the world so he really could commune with the Father. Why was that necessary? Because he'd emptied himself. And he needed to be reinforced as a man like any man. Therefore, Jesus knows what it is to have something coming up and call on the Holy Spirit. And call on the Father for help. We see it clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane. But it's interesting. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, what happened there? We know one thing that happened. It says angels came and strengthened him. He needed physical strength to go ahead. It's considered by a lot of the theologians as they look at the Mount of Transfiguration that the meeting with with Moses, Elijah, uh, 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 was, was, was to prepare him to face the cross because that was the next move in his ministry. I believe the Holy Spirit came to empower is one picture that I am comfortable with. Jesus the man. And Jesus... It's told very clearly. God in the flesh, man and God at the same time, God-man. Then the, And also, to go along with what God had told John the Baptist is the identity, the Holy Spirit descending. Okay. Now, the dove is, is a little more, you know, why the dove? And, and I only have a, a few thoughts on that for this, this morning. Uh, and and let there be light. And and uh, the, it's the idea is first off the dove is as a symbol of what? When you say to most people and symbolically, what do you when you think of the dove outside of the Holy Spirit descending? You think automatically of peace. Okay, that is no surprise. I mean that that goes back to and we'll see that coming from Scripture as well. Jesus even tells his disciples, that I want you to go out and be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. Okay? And, and so the idea is a sense of innocence, a sense of peace. But I think more importantly, it is also a picture of sacrifice. And I, and I, and I know that I, I, I even went back to my notes in Bible college. I keep kept all my binders for that, and read over what a guy by the name of Dallas Meserve, and I read over his pages 
okay, in this section of the life of Christ because I wanted to be sure I had remembered this right. And he was bringing up this picture of when a Hebrew, and Dallas was one of my you know, favorite teachers, even though he was extremely harsh, if you will, in the classroom, he had great demands and he had no hesitation saying it publicly uh, in reference to any individual. We, we, we said at times that Dallas Meserve had a caustic tongue. Uh, man, he could just, boom, put you in your place. If you were going to make an argument in class, you better be prepared. And, because he would take you to the cleaner. And, and this, but, but, but he was one of these, these people that says, you need to see it from the eyes of the people who were hearing this. Matthew was written for Hebrews, for the audience of the Jewish people. You need to, <laughs> it's just, oh, oh, oh. And, and, and the idea was, when a, when a, Hebrew would hear dove, they would automatically tie dove to lamb without a hesitation or a second thought. Why? Because both doves and lambs were used for sin offerings. The people who did not have the money to afford a lamb could substitute a dove. And so Jesus is being identified here as the sacrifice. I have no problems with that. I think that's pretty, it's a good symbol. So it's not just the idea using the symbol as everybody, you know, you know, receiving the Holy Spirit and everybody, you know, the dove kind of thing. And I don't have a problem with that. But the only places the dove is used uh, is, is here in this symbolism for the Holy Spirit as it descends on Jesus. And it was the idea of the picture of innocent, Peace, meaning he's going to bring peace between God and man. Sacrifice as a lamb of God. And, and the idea of, of, of identifying him as the one and only Son of God. And that's what John the Baptist said. Father speaks. This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. There's two scriptures that tie to this. This is my Son. You could go back to Psalm chapter two or Psalm two, uh, verse seven, where, where, where it's actually the, the 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 Messiah, the Christ, the Son speaking. Because my Father has said, "This is my Son." Okay, this is my Son is being. It's got support of the Old Testament and it's being brought right into this picture, I believe, tying things together. And then it says, "...in whom I am well pleased." Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9 will deal with that and the idea of, of God being pleased. And so, bringing this together, it's interesting, two scriptures that are known by the Hebrew people to be prophetic of the Messiah, the, 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 the coming Christ, are God uses... This is my Son in whom I am well pleased, tying Psalms and Isaiah together in Jesus as far as prophetic fulfillment goes. And then what you can't miss seeing the Trinity here. When anybody tells me that the Trinity is, is not a biblical word because you can't find the word Trinity in there, I can't help but start here. God the Father the Holy Spirit descending, but God the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit has descended, resting on, not taking the place of, okay, Jesus, 
You've got God the Father, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, you have God the Son, all three participating at the same time in an act that has to do with our salvation. Back to Jesus the man for just a minute. Hebrews chapter 4, and I've gone there frequently, 14 through 16, but talks about how he will suffer uh, in, in every way in order to be our high priest. In every way, a man, he knows our every emotion, our every feeling, our every hurt and pain and suffering without sin. And again, his prayer life reflects this. Again, I mentioned the, the major times of prayer, uh, the choosing of the twelve, uh, Peter's confession, uh, the, the, the time at the, the Mount of Transfiguration, the garden, the cross. To me, the most revealing being that of the garden and the cross. Never more clearly did we see God, man, Jesus, the man, in his agony. But he was also God the Son in agony at the same time. He was going to experience, and I don't know how this works on an eternal context, but he was going to know what it is to experience the separation from the Father. How do I know that? Because that is the price of sin. That is the wages of sin, and he paid it. His words on the cross, again tying psalms into the picture, this time Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Had God totally forsaken him? In the sense of, on a permanent basis, obviously not. In fact, in Psalm 22 where he talks about the cross, there's, a, 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 the, there's the first part where Jesus is on the cross and the next part he says, but I know everything that's going to happen and the victorious and, and, my, you know, and how all of this is going to be resolved. But first, this, to the point of distress that would cause the capillaries in his, in his forehead and, uh, and, and possibly the lower part of the cheek and face uh, to so expand that the, the, they would bleed blood in his sweat as he agonized in prayer. But even there, not my will, your will be accomplished. All righteousness completed. I guess if for me that leaves us, you know, a good spot to lead right into communion. You know, Gethsemane, Jesus' agony at the cross, and then my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? To come to finally the words on the cross. It is finished. What started in his ministry with, the, with him being baptized by John the Baptist, Baptist uh, and, and, and I go, like I said, with G. Campbell Morgan on this, being identified even at that point among the transgressors, he was identified at his death among the transgressors with a thief on either side. And, and if the Hebrew custom had anything to do with it, he'd have been buried uh, in a field someplace. But after it is finished, the price is paid. 
God has already orchestrated what's to happen next. Joseph of Arimathea and his friends, they, they asked to take him off the cross and actually went boldly to, 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 to Pilate to get the permission. I don't think Pilate cared, really. Yeah? And it, it, he was hoping everything was done. Little did he know. And instead of being buried off in a field someplace, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Boom. Isaiah 53 again, now at the end, instead of the beginning where he's numbered among the transgressors, he's buried in a rich man's tomb. I just love to see how Scripture comes together. And, and sometimes we overact, overwork it to make it happen. It, if you just look, you can see a really awesome flow of God's Word. I ask the ushers to come uh, pass the communion out until we've, and hold it until we've all been served and we'll share it together. Christ.
supper that he had with his disciples before he was crucified, he, he took bread and, and, and after giving thanks and, and, and breaking it, he passed to the disciples and he literally put that picture to this. This is my flesh broken for you. And he asked as often as we would share this that we would do it in remembrance of him. same meal at the end he took the cup of wine lifted up and he gave it a, a new symbolism in the sense of this is my blood which I poured out for you to purchase the covenant and again he asked as often as we would drink this we would do it in remembrance of him until he comes again Father again we come with grateful hearts Many of us have heard the word Eucharist tied to the communion in communion time, the serving and, and sharing of Eucharist, the word meaning thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that we could think of to be more thankful for. Much as I love my wife and my kids and my family, Lord, what you have done is at the top of the list. And we ask, Lord, that You would move in us in such a way that we would never be content with where we are in our walk with You, but always desire and want to know more of You, to be closer to You, and, 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 and uh, settle for nothing less. We know that drive even there comes from You. And so we offer ourselves to You as You tell us to, as living sacrifices. Change the way we think. Transform us that we might be more like You and as a result, also, a better testimony for you as well. 
We ask that you go with us. And again, we want you to say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.